You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 17 through 29 this morning. And uh, I've entitled the message, uh, But If You Call Yourself a Christian. And that's taken uh, based on verse 17 of our text today. And I think it's important that in order for us to begin thoughtfully applying Paul's message, we need to begin to relate to the categories of people that he's talking about in this text. And here Paul is helping us to understand our sinfulness and our need for the gospel. And and he's speaking to those people in particular who might be leaning on their own uh, religious privileges or their religious works instead of Christ. And so it, it reminds us it's possible to be very religious and lost. And the Jews were a case in point in, in Paul's day. And, but, but as we read it, let's not forget that there are those in our day who may be trusting in their religious works to save them. Romans 2 verse 17 But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, You then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is a value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have, written the, who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Let's pray. Lord, we we seek your help now and the power of your spirit in understanding, uh, Lord, your word today. And, and also, Lord, we pray that your spirit would apply your truth to our hearts in, in, in ways that only you can, like a skillful surgeon cutting into our hearts. Uh, we pray that you would do that work in our lives, that we might know uh, in, in, in beauty and joy the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would use me, Lord, as your servant. I pray that you would increase and I would decrease and your word would go forth. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I think the best way to 
explain this passage, again, which is a little difficult for us, is to key off the last two verses that we read there. And I've used those verses to kind of create an outline for us to think about this whole text uh, this morning. Verse 28 says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. And then verse 29, But a Jew is one inwardly. So here's the first truth. We'll just jump in. No one is a Christian who is merely one outwardly. Outwardly. I think that's what Paul is explaining in verses 17 through 24, particularly to his Jewish audience, those who considered themselves to be religious and who were rejecting the gospel, frankly, because they didn't think they needed it. So in verses 1 through 16, Paul has been addressing their first argument that they were all right as they were simply because they were Jews. They were the children of Abraham. But here in these verses, verses 17 through 24, Paul takes up their argument that because they possessed the law of God, they didn't need the gospel either. You know, they may have said something like, but Paul, the, the law was given to us. We're the, we're the people of the law. We, we have, we've got Mo, Moses' Old Testament law, and therefore it's, it's inconceivable that we could possibly be under judgment as you say that we are. In other words, the Jewish person may have argued that it's inconceivable that they could possibly be lost, unrighteous, in need of this salvation that Paul was, was preaching. And so Paul sets out here to show them their sinfulness before God and really to expose their hypocrisy. The hypocrisy that marked many of the Jews of this time. They had a religious appearance outwardly, but inwardly, they were dead. They were lost. They were in need of a Savior. And so what Paul teaches here is a warning to those who are merely Christians outwardly. And, and he gives us some distinguishing marks of this hypocrisy, and I think they're marks that still apply for us today. First of all, someone who is a Jew or a Christian outwardly is often shallow. That is, they have a surface-level interest in the truth. Surface-level. Uh, an intellectual interest in the truth, you might say. This is, uh, I think, the characteristic here that explains all of the others. Verses 17 and 18, he says, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. There's an attitude here behind this text. The Jews were very interested in the law of Moses. But, but I think Paul is pointing out here that they were only interested in a, a very theoretical or intellectual or shallow manner. Uh, Lloyd-Jones notes that here that nothing gave greater pleasure to a typical Jew than to have an argument about the law. And we see this in the New Testament, particularly with the Pharisees. They loved it. They loved to argue about the law of Moses. They loved to debate it. They, they were taught in it. They were trained in it. They were committed it. They committed it to memory. But they never applied it to their heart. And so this is one of the first characteristics of a, of a hypocrite or someone who's 
merely trying to be something on the outside. The person may love the Bible. They might brag about how much they know the Bible. They love to debate the Bible. In fact, there's nothing more delightful to them to get into an argument about theology so as long as they keep it on an intellectual level and it never goes to a devotional level to their heart. Be discerning about others. This is a warning to us. A warning even in our own, to watch for in our own hearts. Another mark of hypocrisy is complacency. Complacency. In other words, this person is always pleased with himself. And you notice again the attitude that Paul brings about, brings to light. Verse 17, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law, the word rely means rest. They're resting on the law. This is one who uh, is merely a, a Jew or a Christian, as we're applying it, a Christian outwardly. They think of themselves as, as a godly person. I'm a good person. I remind you again of the parable Jesus told about the Pharisee in the temple who said, I am not like other men. Uh, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector pointing to the guy next to him. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. In other words, the hypocrite is on wonderful terms with himself. You see it again in verse 19, the attitude. He says, if you, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in the darkness. The picture here is of someone who is completely confident in himself because in his mind, he's complete. He's got it all. He's full of self-confidence. And because of this, he knows nothing of the fear of the Lord. It doesn't even cross his, his mind. Why? Because he's good. I'm not under... Judgment? He's, he's never imagined that there could be anything wrong with him. There's definitely no humility in the hypocrite. There's not any self-examination because why would you need to do that if you're good? He's resting in the law. He's boasting in God, the text says. But really, his resting and his boasting is in himself. He's confident and he knows it. He's not conscious of any sin in his life. Third, he's prideful. Paul notes that he teaches others, but, but not himself. Verse 19, and if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a, a light to those who are in the darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. In other words, he's all these things. But then Paul adds in verse 21, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? A hypocrite wants to teach others, but never wants to teach himself. There's great warning here, isn't there? Warning in our own hearts, a warning for those who teach and preach the Word. Sunday school teachers, anybody who's teaching, preaching. There's, there's a danger here of, of studying, again, as we talked about in that first point, studying for only for knowledge rather than for transformation of one's heart. There's a danger here in only becoming interested in, in, from, from an intellectual standpoint rather than to apply it spiritually, to get all excited about these ideas and truth, but not the implications for our lives. 
And there's a danger, of course, in not preaching these things to oneself. But a hypocrite's not concerned about that, you see. Because he's ready always to apply it to others. He's ready to give it to other people, but not himself. He's already complete. He doesn't lack anything. He's full of pride. And Paul takes it a step further. The hypocrite is guilty because he fails to live what he preaches to others. Verse 21, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. Notice Paul personalizes it here, doesn't he? He starts to really ask some pinpointing, pinpointed questions. Do you steal? Do you commit adultery? Do you pour idols? Do you rob temples? These are questions that could be directed toward all kinds of religious people, right? Not just Jews, religious Jews, but all kinds of people who would consider themselves religious. Boyce writes this concerning stealing. We steal from God when we fail to worship Him as we ought or when we set our own concerns ahead of His. We steal from an employer when we do not give the best work of which we are capable or when we overextend our coffee breaks or leave work early. We steal when we borrow something and do not return it. Concerning adultery, we remember Jesus' definition in the Sermon on the Mount. It says, the one who looks upon another with lust has committed adultery in his heart. And it's unclear what Paul meant by robbing temples. Now, we could spend a long time talking about that. I don't know what it means uh, for sure. But it isn't unclear what he says about having idols. He, he ascribing value to something, greater value to something more than we ascribe it to God in our lives. And the principle underlining all of these things is that the hypocrite is guilty of doing the very things that he denounces in other people. He sees so clearly the sins of others, but he fails to recognize the guilt of his own sin. And the Pharisees, again, were prime examples of these things. Sproul writes this, They were masters of masquerading who pretended to have a form of righteousness that they really did not possess. And that's exactly what Paul is exposing here. He's talking about how hypocrisy is so destructive, both to your own soul, to our souls, and to and to the souls of others. Notice the effect it has in verse 24. For as it is written, here's the effect of hypocrisy, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. He's quoting Isaiah 52, 5 there. He's noting how hypocrites cause those who are outside of the church to blaspheme God's name. And that's not difficult to understand. I mean, we've, we've heard this before. The church is full of, come on, say the word. We've heard that. One minister responded to that complaint. He said, there's always room for one more, too. 
Another one said, if you find a perfect church, don't join it because you'll ruin it. (laughs) And those things are true, aren't they? Because all of us are sinners. All people are sinners. Everyone sinned. This is Paul's point. Uh, I I love this. Sproul Sproul again equips this. He says, being a sinner is the first qualification for joining the church. That's exactly right, isn't it? Because we, we have to acknowledge our sinfulness and our need and, and faith in, in, in a Savior. But this is why hypocrisy is so dangerous. Not just for the souls of others that we, we might lead other people astray. That's a terrible thing. We might blaspheme the name. But, but also dangerous for our own souls. Ferguson puts it like this, there is all the difference in the world between possessing religious privileges and possessing saving grace. This is what Paul is driving at here. The religious person claims to be more righteous than he is, and it keeps him from the true righteousness that he so desperately needs. The righteousness of Christ. That comes through faith. And you know this, God knows the secrets of your life, even your heart. He will not exempt you from the judgment. No one is a Christian who is merely one outwardly. Here's the second point. One is a Christian, both, and I'm sure you've already got this, inwardly and outwardly, right? That's what he says Verse 28 and 29 again, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, but a Jew is one, verse 29, inwardly. That is a a true Jew, and he's he's speaking there again, I, I think, a bigger, he's talking about an authentic believer, a true child of Abraham, one who is an authentic Christian, is not just one on the outside, but one on the inside. In verses 25 through 29, Paul explains this with this illustration of circumcision. Let me just say a few words about that to help us to understand just a little background here. Remind you that when God made a covenant with Abraham back in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, uh, he gave Abraham a sign, and the sign that he gave Abraham was circumcision. Circumcision was to be a sign of God's covenant promise with Abraham and all of his descendants. Later on in Moses, at the law of Moses, circumcision became a part of the law commanded by God. Leviticus 12, you're to circumcise your male children. But this practice, hear this just in brief, this practice was intended to be a picture of what was to happen in the heart. Just like baptism is a picture of the reality of salvation. It's an outward sign of an inward change. And so the foreskin was cut with a sharp knife, signifying that this person is to be set apart for God. Now, it's important for us to understand, yes, for the Jew, circumcision proclaimed outwardly, circumcision proclaimed outwardly that you're really one of God's people. You're set apart for a holy God. But understand, it's only significant if you really are one of God's people. 
This is why Moses commanded the people in Deuteronomy 10, 16. He says, circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be, not, be no longer stubborn, he says. Having an uncircumcised heart meant that you were stiff-necked. It meant that you were uh, like a stubborn ox refusing to submit to his master. You're unrepentant. You're resistant. Just like he's saying here, they, the Israelites were refusing to submit themselves to the lordship of God. They, they needed to have their hearts cut. Convicted of their sin and, and repenting of it. Circumcise your heart, he said. Notice this is something that man is responsible for, but only God can do. Deuteronomy 10, or Deuteronomy 30, excuse me, verse 6 says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. So this is, this is critical to understanding Paul's argument here, verse 28. He says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. Holy Spirit. Not the latter, he says. His praise is not from man, but from God. Ferguson, again on this, Paul has pursued them into a corner here. He is telling them that your works, your outward works cannot save you. The fact that you have the law cannot save you. The fact that you've been circumcised cannot save you. Just as uh, someone might say, we might say to someone in our day, well, these things, these things may be true of other people, but you see, I was baptized. So I'm different. I'm safe. That's the very attitude that Paul is dealing with here. He's dealing with people who are appealing, who are trusting in, who are relying in a religious symbol, a sign that, that has, been, has been given to them that they are God's people. And they think, so long as I have that sign, I am safe from the judgment of God. And I'm not like these other Gentile unbelievers who don't have the sign. But Paul says it's not the outward sign that should concern you. The one... It's the inward one. It's that God has circumcised your heart. That's what saves a person. A Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, he says. Salvation happens by the Spirit. Notice, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and that you may live. The great need of our lives is to trust the Spirit for a changed heart. It, it is to be cut inwardly, convicted of our sin, being made aware of this so that we might turn to God for a new heart, turn to God to do something in us that we cannot do for ourselves, to, 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 to make us born again, to give us a new birth, to be regenerated by the Spirit of God. Galatians 6.15, Paul writes, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. There's no saving value in this outward sign. The thing that matters before God is that you are born again. 
new creation. That's why when we talk about baptism being an outward sign of an inward change, we're reminding ourselves over, the Christian is not one who has merely taken on the externals of the faith. He's not one who's just decided, I think I'm going to be a Christian now, and he picks up all these religious kind of signs. But rather, this is a Christian is one who has himself been taken by God, who is trusting God, trusting Christ for his salvation, and his heart has been changed by the Spirit so that now he wants to love God and serve him. Notice then, he seeks secondly to obey in the power of the Spirit. His heart has been so changed that he wants to obey God. There's no duplicity here. There's no hypocrisy here. The Christian, the one who is both inward and outward, knows full well the sinful nature of his heart, and so he is seeking to obey God and the power of the Spirit. Listen to the, the, the emphasis on obedience in verse 25. For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcised. In other words, the sign doesn't matter anymore. What, what, what good is the sign? Verse 26, so if a man who is uncircumcised, he keeps the precepts of the law, there it is, keeps, he, will, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? What's the greater sign? Is it circumcision or is it obedience? You know the answer, church. Verse 27, then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. He's not saying there's no value in signs. Like, it's really important what we did this morning. You understand that, right? The Lord's Supper is a sign, the baptism. Really important that we have these signs of our faith, but only if they are reflecting the, the fact that we really are the people of God. And through them, we're communing with our Savior. And most significant, the, the most significant outward sign of our lives is obedience to his word. Three times he says it. Verse 25, if you obey the law. Verse 26, he who keeps the precepts of the law. Verse 27, he who keeps the law. God is so after our hearts so that we would continue turning from our sins and follow him in obedience. And so we need to ask the question, are we following him in obedience? And then notice, finally, he is rewarded by God with life. Such a person can be assured, he says in verse 29, that his praise is not from man but from God. In other words, God gives him eternal life. This is the same thing in the Old Testament. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Gives life. These words, again, we may read them, and somebody may read them and say, What in the world? They don't have anything to do with today. These words, again, have so much important for us today, church. I'm very fearful today that there are a lot of people who are trusting in outward religious things for their salvation. I'm I walked down an aisle a long time ago. I, uh, I signed a membership card. I prayed a prayer. 
I was baptized. I, I've taken the Lord's Supper. And there's no doubt we would say that all of these things are very meaningful to those who are truly Christians. But at the same time, we would say that these things in and of themselves cannot save a person. Only Jesus saves. And only when you respond to His loving conviction and let Him circumcise your heart, let Him cut you, Cut your heart, cut you deep, so deep that, that you quit making excuses before God. You quit trying to justify yourself before God. You quit trying to think that maybe you're going to justify Him through your religious works. No, you finally and fully surrender your heart to Him in desperation and spiritual bankruptcy because there is no other way that you can be saved except through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's what it means. And so the question to you this morning is, do you recognize your need for these things in your own heart and life? Have you recognized them? Do you recognize them? Are you a new creation in Christ? Or are you like a whitewashed tomb, as Jesus called the Pharisees? Look great on the outside, but you know you're lost. Look to Christ today. Call out to Him. Call out to Him in, in your desperation because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Father, thank You for Your Word today. and We pray now, as we've been examining our hearts and lives this morning, that we would continue doing that. Uh, for many, perhaps in this room, it will be a time again of great gratitude that uh, you have indeed circumcised their hearts and you have saved them through the cross of Jesus Christ. But for others, Lord, who may be here, perhaps who look very religious on the outside, but they've not been cut and they've not been saved. Lord, awaken them. Raise them up today from the deadness of their sins to new life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark. And if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.